This is the Stanford's podcast at the Stanford's Travel Writers Festival at Destinations in Olympia. Welcome Paul Blazard and Julian Sarah.
whatsoever and uh, I, I cycled around the world and not for great adventures but it was a, a planned undertaking and, and there's something about interstate and the, the events that led to it that I think is, is really very true to the spirit of, of travel writing. I had um, been hired to work on a documentary in New York State, upstate on the Hudson River. Didn't, um, didn't come to fruition but I was already in New York and had cut my ties with London for two months. Um, and with two months of nothing to do and in the States already, I was like, well, I should probably hitchhike to California, sort of thing. Um, and so that's what I did, and um, I was a politics graduate originally, and, and the writing of the cycle around the world is a genre of kind of politics at roadsides, yeah. is what I've, you know, endeavoured to do. Um, so, yeah, I, I set out. And I think that throws up very sort of original and different conundrums when, when you're travelling. If you, you, know, you don't know on day seven I expect to be here. Um, if you don't really know exactly why you're doing it other than going west. I mean, when I cycled around the world, I was going to break this world record. There was actually a very strong political dimension to wanting to do that as well. So there was a sense of purpose. And with Interstate, there was real, really no purpose. And... I think that probably lends something to the writing because there's just an evaluation in it of, you know, why do we travel in the first place? Why, why am I walking through the woods of Appalachia mm. with the rain falling on me at two o'clock in the morning because my bivy bag's leaking? You know, why, why am I not somewhere a bit more comfortable right now? Um, so, so yeah, it's com completely unplanned undertaking. But in a way, that gives you great liberty because if there's no agenda and there's no real plan and no real route you are free to be that sort of old-style... I mean, I don't want to use the word hobo too much, but the sort of guys back in, in the Depression, in the early 20th century United States, that would get on a rail car and just go wherever it takes them. There's a certain joyous liberty and freedom to that sort of travelling. Yeah, I mean, and there's no need to reference the 20th century when you say something like that, because those guys are still very much out there. And, um, I mean, cycling across the United States, it's, it's very interesting because... No one ever assumes in the US that someone would cycle so far, or cycle at all, really, for fun. It's a very petrol-orientated, car-orientated culture. The only people who are travelling on bicycles are generally tramps. And likewise, at roadsides, you have people... I mean, often they're just drifting. They're high on this idea of American dream, and, you know, like, Jesus is in the stars, and when I can see the stars, I know that Jesus is looking out for me. I had a, um, a homeless guy at the roadside of Arizona say that to me once. Um, but often it's a very functional thing that they're moving south, as I was, because um, it was November when I'd arrived in New York and it was cold and wet, and I was wanted to get down south as quickly as possible. So, yeah, there is these very sort of eternal geographical or meteorological pull, pull factors, push factors, that determine your route. Um, and then, yeah, with hitchhiking, you are sort of at the mercy of fate a little bit, wherever your ride is going... You hope that it's in line with roughly the way you're expected. You hope that you're not going back the way you came at all, and you just figure it out slowly. Right. I mean, I'm old enough to, to, to remember a time through my parents who, who for their honeymoon, hitchhiked around Europe when hitchhiking seemed to be a much more understood, a much more acceptable thing. To hitchhike across the States these days, did you have any preconception about how easy it was going to be, how difficult it was going to be? what you were going to expect, what you were going to find along, along the road and how helpful people might or might not be. Yeah, well, I mean, I, sorry, I keep mentioning the bicycle thing, but, it, yeah, the, the comparative experience between hitchhiking across the States and cycling, you could not imagine anything further removed. 
uh, you know, cycling across the US, I would have had people wind down the car window just spontaneously and hand me $10 and, and say, you've done something amazing here. Or people who saw me in a grocery store, we chatted outside a grocery store on, Cal on Big Sur in California, and I told them what I was doing, and they came and found me in the store, gave me $20 and like, have dinner on us. A teacher who'd always wanted to cycle across the States uh, insisted that I come back to his house when he saw that I had a broken wheel when I was riding through Los Angeles. I was like, man, I need to make tracks. And he insisted twice, and the second time I acquiesced and, and went back, and he came, went into his house, very modest uh, tenement building, and uh, came out with a little knapsack of cereal bars and apples and things. And then he said, and I got something that'll fix that wheel. And he just stuffed $100 into my pocket. And I, had, I, I was given hundreds of dollars, <laughs> ridiculously, cycling across the United States. Had hundreds of dollars worth of repairs paid for by other people or done by mechanics out of the goodness of their heart. And the whole, uh, I kind of realized with hitchhiking that when you're on a bike in the US, you're bootstrapping. You know, you're picking yourself up by the bootstraps. They, they assume you're down and out, even if you're on a quite expensive, well-made German bicycle. <laughs> they still assume you're a hobo. Um, and they take to that spirit. Um, it's the American dream, you're, you're moving yourself. Uh, when you're hitchhiking, and it's ironic, because when you're hitchhiking, you actually do need someone. You know, the bicycle is beautiful, independent travel. Hitchhiking, you're there with your thumb out, and you're going to hope that someone stops for you. And, and people don't. I mean, it's, um, it's a culture that's very high on fear, you know, you'll walk, it's the, the, the impact of its orientation towards the motor car is horrendous and, and shocking, actually, because it dehumanizes public space. You know, you are deviant just for walking down a street. And, and yeah, people who would have picked me up said, you know, 30 years, around, 30 years ago around here, people hitchhiked, but now everyone owns a car. So suddenly the very act of not owning a car is sort of cause for suspicion. Um, and, you know, the, the way that urban planning is there where needlessly, seemingly, the distance between the outer region of the town and the downtown is five miles just because, you know, every house and its, and its, and its garden yard is half the size of this arena uh, for no apparent reason. And uh, occasionally I'd walk up to people just asking directions as they were pulling out of a car lot, a parking lot and their window was down in Arizona and I would have walked towards them and as you walk towards them the window goes up. <laughs> yeah, and, and that very dehumanizing thing because you are being rejected at the roadsides as people drive by again and again and, and then when you're actually getting towards what could be a personal encounter and you're sort of being rejected in this way that would seem very rude. And I don't entirely condemn Americans for that. I think their media diet is, is terrifying. It should not be legal. It, it's entertainment that masquerades as news. And it's had a profound effect on the psychology of that entire culture. We're seeing the fruits of that, or the poison fruits in, in the current election. Um, and so the, the, the sense of fear is, is prevalent, but there are people at those roadsides who, I think, were they in Europe, probably wouldn't have been allowed to fall out of the bottom of society as far as they have in the United States. And some of them, perhaps, with very real mental health difficulties or a, a, a frightening lack of education. I mean, I don't mean to be disdainful of anything. And the way that you know we elites or metropolitans talk about Middle America is obviously a sensitive subject. But yeah, there there are people at those roadsides who who, who need some sort of help. And I can't really hold it against the Americans that assumed that I was another one of those people who, you know, was going to create an awkward scenario or wasn't quite in control of my faculties and, yeah.
Can we talk about... I mean, if, it strikes me that this book is about two things. It's, it's slightly about fear. It's slightly about greed. You start each section of the book with a, a, a reference of where the Dow Jones Stock Exchange Index in Wall Street is at that particular point. Explain why that was important to the telling of this story. Um, yeah, well, I'm really glad you noticed that because uh, I think some people might just be... Uh, it, it's very deliberate that it's there. Um, America and ourselves too, we shouldn't put it all on them. We were obsessed with markets, the position of markets, and I wanted to write a book that was essentially a portrait of places and the people I was meeting in all their, you know, their human ways. Um, you know, broken dreams, things that haven't worked out, people that are just ridiculously jaded by life, or people that are hopeful and, and kind-hearted. And, and that is the essence of life, and the essence of what travel writing should be, and, and we're being coerced into this understanding of our societies that is defined by markets. And you have all of these human moments, and, and yeah, I wanted to really highlight the absurdity, really, that this 15,627.32 up half a percent has all but no meaning to, to our lives and, and the priority, I'm not decrying my markets, I think some people think that I'm a, a raging communist and I'm absolutely not I just think that there should be a hell of a lot more proportion between how we look at humanity and society and, um, and the importance that we put onto markets because it's very topsy-turvy right now Of course the terrible irony of this is as I've found um, as I was looking through this, is of course there is a direct correlation between the experiences you had and what is happening in the markets because the more everything gets more market-centric, the few, most of the people who are disenfranchised, who are disillusioned, who are now very cynical, they are in that position largely because the markets now run the world. And then we get to the joyous things. Talk to us about the concept of owner-operator truck drivers <laughs> in the States and how they kind of, you're very... You write beautifully about them in this book, and you sort of have them as the sort of modern manifestation of the American dream. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the owner-operators of the, the trucks that you see driving back and forth across the US are, are quite un dying and privileged. It's, it's like the artisan trader on a high street, almost, because it's a big capital investment to own a truck, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, my big ride in the in the book that took me from Ohio to Arizona was with Pala, who's a beautiful man and a member of the Punjabi immigrant community and uh, a trucker. His cousin is a successful architect in San Francisco or maybe Fresno, California, um, and so had signed the, the pay on the debt that allowed Pala to buy his own truck. Pala will be paying off this debt for the next decade, but after that he, you know, he can be his own man. Um, he can turn down jobs that he that he doesn't want to do. He can he can actually charge a, a rate that reflects the costs of his labour. Uh, the alternative to that is more like it's a large consolidated franchise. I don't really know what the word would be, but as as with um, you know a Walmart employee who has to show up at the shop and just pay receive their wages, most truckers really. Um, now work for a handful of very big firms who own the rigs and they might be paid maybe a cent a mile which is on, on the stickers on the back of some of those trucks and come drive for us one cent a mile um, which is in some ways testament to the size of the United States but is also still a frighteningly low wage and all of the pressures of that delivery being delayed 
by unavoidable circumstances are on the backs of, of these invariably men. I mean, there are some women, there are some truckers who travel with their wives, but invariably just men on their own on the roads. Um, it's on their backs, and they're going to come out with a pittance of a wage, like a few hundred dollars for their time. They're going to live their entire working lives in this five, five cubic meters, maybe, of cab. Um, and with, with nothing to show for it at the end of it. Uh, and someone like Paolo is in the position that he, you know, he worries about the pressure of his debt because if he gets sick, um, and he, he's a real lover of field hockey, his, his working life, uh, uh, because he couldn't afford healthcare, he went back to the Punjab for two months every year to play field hockey to keep his body fit. This was his, his ritual, while his cousin drove the rig for him. But hit the pressure on him of if I get sick and I can't make drive and I can't make payment, then, then this is on, on his shoulders. But he at least has the opportunity that after maybe a decade of that, he can make some okay money. You right. know. Can you give us a picture of, of the experience of hitchhiking, contemporary hitchhiking in North Amer Northern United States of America? Not only from your perspective, and I kind of want to know, were you ever frightened, were you ever... Are you obviously frustrated? Were you ever frightened? Were you ever worried? Do you ever take the decision when you were offered lifts and you thought, oh, there's something hinky here, I'm not getting in this car? But also from the other side of that equation, about, did you talk about people that were giving you rides as to why they chose to pick you up? Um, yeah, I mean, it's funny. It's kind of a unifying feature of there's very different people who pick you up, but they all have that same thing in common that they're not just going to drive by. And some of them might be kind of hippies or hillbillies who have maybe been... They just have that value of that way of life, and so they you know, want to accommodate it and help out. Uh, other people just don't have this almost infection of fear, um, and so you know, pick someone up at the roadside. Some people who are mainly maybe lonely. Um, happens more maybe in Europe than the US, but well-to-do businessmen even in France. I've been picked up by some pretty well-off businessmen in France who just drive a lot for work uh, and like the company. Um, uh, old, old truck driver who's driving back from fixing his rig and I think was just lonely and um, yeah, just wanted some company. So they, they all have something in common, um, but it's nevertheless quite a unique cross-section of, um, of, of average Americans kind of thing. And you're talking, and you write so well about the, the sort of national consciousness of fear of other that existed in the States when you were doing when you were writing this and when you were doing the trip, which was before Trump was president, one can only imagine what it is like now. But were you yourself ever frightened? Did you ever think, I put myself in a, in a dangerous situation here? Um, I mean, I was in uncomfortable positions because I, and it's quite funny receiving this award at a nice prestigious ceremony and stuff. And, you know, not, I was told by truckers, like, beat it. They spoke to me like I was a dog at truck stops because they just assumed that I was this bum and so they had a right to talk to me in that way. Um, and, you know, slept at roadsides and in ditches and stuff like that. But, I mean, from all of my travelling, I don't really... I, you know, you learn not to fear that stuff. If someone comes across you sleeping rough, essentially, on the edge of a town, they're the one that's scared, not you. It's, it's, they're the one who's found the stranger sleeping at the roadside. And, you know, there was, I, I generally avoid, avoid towns. I, you know, I would never go out of my way to, to sleep rough. Um, and, and the woods or, or open, open fields are always my preference. And, you know, people took me in along the way as well. Um, there was one evening outside Las Vegas, actually, where I was, I'd walked across the, to the city limits for a truck stop, needed to keep on going west. 
and I'd really wanted to walk down the strip in Vegas just for this kind of bizarre contrast of me with a human and like my flesh and bone uh, with my life on my back and then these lights and um, you know in this city that really shouldn't exist because it exists because of the Hoover Dam essentially and there's a lot of politics about water resources downstream in Mexico because of all of the water that is consumed by the city of Vegas and, and you feel how unnatural it is and then you're just there doing this eternal thing of walking through a, a backpack and I walked to the city limits uh, was being rejected again and again at a truck stop and you kind of get that in different states and in different regions there's more or less receptiveness to hitchhiking and uh, parts of Nevada I think uh, pretty conservative and uh, like beat it as I say um, but I'd given up on getting a ride that evening and, and there were some concrete tubes sort of immigration uh, irrigation tubing um, at the side of the truck stop and I, I saw it it was a pretty sheltered spot and obviously inside it would be dry I'll just sleep in there and get back on the trucks in the morning um, and then as I was going towards it it was quiet sheltered and I thought oh this is a perfect spot and then there was a moment where it's like a perfect spot and you realise in America that a perfect spot to sleep out like that means that someone else has already found that perfect spot and it went through my head just as I put my head into the pipe and these eyes look out at me I'm like I'm sorry and I just like about turned but again I don't think there's ever a reason to be fair it's just to be in fear it's just yeah discomfort it kind of takes you right out of your comfort zone which isn't always a bad thing in life anyway it's a very good thing just as a quick question then we've got a few more people here how many of you have ever hitchhiked oh a good few that's sort of here in the uk or in europe or in the states hands off the uk europe states oh really and a woman interesting recently yeah you we'll talk to not really. Okay, we might get to ask you. Uh, uh, you're just mad. <laughs> did you meet any other? Did you get to talk to other hitchhikers about their experience? American hitchhikers, other nationalities. Um, yeah, I spoke to a few hitchhikers. I mean, it's interesting when you're at a roadside sometimes, and there's coming into a town, and there are other hitchhikers there, the kind that are just junked up on dream, begging God. Right. And it's weird because you're in the same little species of, you know, you're both roadside hitchhikers, so you could, should kind of say something, and you're walking in the road past them. And then very quickly you realise, of course, you, know, you don't have a lot in common. I mean, nothing in common. Like, there was a time outside Flagstaff, Arizona, walking in, saw some guys uh, asking for change as well, which in America, and you're hitchhiking, everyone assumes you're also begging. It's quite strange when occasionally I was being offered money I don't want the money, I want a lift. And I like, oh, the money for gas. I'm like, well, can I give you the money back and you can drive me the way that we're both going anyway? Um, but this time in Flagstaff, there were guys begging as well. And I was walking into the city to get some food. I'd just been dropped off. And uh, guys say, yeah, we got a good ride from Gallup, New Mexico last night. We're heading to California from Texas last week. Buried my mother. Um, and... Literally, as plain as I just said it there, within 10 or 15 seconds, and the guy had like no front teeth, like bluey, blacky, greeny, sort of crack cocaine smoking front teeth gone. And, and then a, there was a blanket beside him and it moved and I looked down and there was a dog there and he says, be quiet little shit. And then he's like, I call my dog little shit. And he's like, okay. 
<laughs> and by that point, you've been rejected by so many people, you've been misjudged as someone who is in that state yourself. You're so battle-hardened to, you know, you just carry on by this other human being, and that's kind of the really terrifying and dangerous thing about maybe this politics of the highways or very horrendously unequal societies where you just become numb to the idea that actually, of course, this guy has suffering in his life and he's not in a good place and he shouldn't just be at a roadside trying to get to California. But, you know, I've got enough on my own plate right now. I'm just going to go get, get my bagel for breakfast sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, it is um, it's a, a strange one. and yeah. From my own experiences, which a bit like you, cycling around the States, one soon becomes aware, especially outside urban areas, outside cities, of the role of the police departments, the sheriff's departments, the county police, and the different gradations of police, and how alert they are to anybody walking or cycling down the side of the road yeah. that they're not used to. What was... Yeah. Did you did you get to meet many police officers, and how oh, did that yeah, go? Oh, yeah, plenty. I mean, and more on the East Coast. I mean, population density is much more on the East. The settlers arrived there first, so there was a, a longer history of, of settlers, um, and the land is more habitable, so you, you know population is more dense and so you come into contact with the law and I mean that's part of the reason for the donation to the ACLU. Um, I was picked off roadsides by police officers who, you know, tell me get over there by the, the crash barrier, put your hands on the barrier. I'll go, I would have taken my bag off as they were saying that and they're like, don't touch your bag and they come up, pat you down and uh, you know, it's not very nice. And actually, once they hear a British accent and once they can tell I'm perfectly intelligent, they're really civil and, and you know, put me in the back of the car and like, you can't hitchhike here, um, but we can, I'll take you somewhere. Uh, there are black men in America with families who are now dead because of the degree of suspicion and hostility that police came at them with. And this isn't especially bad when you look at polling and it's hard to get accurate reports, but law enforcement in the United States is apparently about 80% in favour of Trump. And when you see the demagoguery of his politics, if you assume as well that there is a law enforcement arm that agrees with it, that doesn't agree in the rule of law, um, and uh, assumes that there are some bad dudes out there who don't have the right to life, um, <coughs> yeah, it, it's that you know it's a very sort of interesting encounter with, with U.S. law, and occasionally I would have been you know moved on by. You've got the state troopers, you've got the state police, and then you've got the county sheriff, and as you say, and then the highway patrol, and always all these different layers of law. And then a guy, I remember sometime maybe in New Jersey, rural New Jersey, a guy saying, you can't hitchhike there. And it was funny, because I'd just been dropped off by the cop that had pulled me off the interstate. Like, well, one of your colleagues said I could. And he kind of snarls and realizes that I'm compass mentis, and then says, go up to the top of that hill, there's a like, car garage there just by that there you can hitchhike. So I did, I was told, got to the top of the hill and you see county line, you move to the next county. So it's just, it's like turf, essentially. Yeah, right. It is the Wild West and he is literally the sheriff. Um, but yeah, it, it's very peculiar. You maybe actually, I, I don't even know, what is, what is the law about hitchhiking in the States? I think it's perfectly legal, but no one really knows. I mean, you can't hitchhike at certain spots on the interstate. Like, you can't hitchhike on the exactly. motorway here in the UK. Yeah, yeah, and if you're sensible, you'd never even try anyway, really. Um, but, I, I, it, yeah, people will say it's against the law. And, and I, do, I think there's no kind of questioning there. And, and America is a very litigious culture. And once you push back, well, you know, I am hitchhiking, I am standing here. Once you go, I'm probably going to put my thumb back out. 
I don't have any contingency for how I'm going to California, so um, I'm probably going to end up hitchhiking. But yeah, nobody seems really, really to know. And I think um, New Jersey, they say it's illegal in New Jersey, but I, I don't know. I know this is not really what the book's about, but just give us the headline statistics. Um, how long did it take to get from New York to California? It's about a month. How many different rides? I did look into that once. I wrote it down in the back of my notebook. I think it was about maybe between 30 and 50. And I mean, the amazing thing is that um, Pala, the Punjabi guy, took me all the way from Cincinnati, Ohio, to Flagstaff, Arizona. It took two and a half thousand miles across five days. Um, so, yeah, about 80% of the distance was with one ride, and then, you know, 30 other rides made up the final sort of 600 miles or something like that. It's, of course, rather fascinating to hear that your best ride came from a guy who is from the Punjab, who is a migrant, an immigrant himself, yeah, yeah. into the United States of America, and has less fear than the people that have lived there transgenerationally. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, he's a Sikh. He's the most beautiful man. Um, he's a vegetarian as well, as a, as a Sikh. So I was eating like paratas and, and roti and uh, dal at truck stops. You know, you've got burgers and, and all-you-can-eat breakfasts and no nice food anywhere, but he knows where the Punjabi community is. So I was there with, with my... There are actually Punjabi truck stops uh, in oh, the United well, States. So you see this hierarchy because actually the Punjab, Punjabi guys drive trucks and are very hardworking, but the Gujaratis guys are much smarter, so they own the truck stops. So generally the, the Gujarati guys are, the, are the owning the truck stops. Um, but yeah, he was a vegetarian. He'd been raised as a, as a quite strict Sikh. His father was a priest. Um, and had moved away from religion because of problems in his family, which are sort of in, in the book. And, um, yeah, he, he still had that kind of peace from a sense of spirituality. And he'd be there on his phone in the morning, a smartphone that looked linked up to Punjab, Punjab prayers being read in northern India. And he'd be there with his little prayer that the Department of Transport wouldn't stop him uh, for that day's driving and check his logbook wasn't out of order or something. Um, and, yeah, he, he's, a, he's a really wonderful guy. Do you know, how, how surprising an image is that when the, our average image of the American trucker is a guy with sort of haunches for arms and obscene stickers on the back of his truck? How refreshing. Yeah. Um, one last question for me, and then we'll open it to the floor. You've won this incredibly prestigious prize for travel writing, and it's, a bit of, it's an unfair question to ask you, but you're now an authority, therefore, on travel writing. What makes for good travel writing? Um, the same as any writing, really. I mean, I only sort of embraced the idea of being a travel writer, per se, in maybe the last few years, once I <laughs> when I found myself in settings like this, and I thought I probably might be now. Um, I, you know, my heroes in literary terms are like Flaubert, uh, Dostoevsky, um, Louis Ferdinand Céline would be the only guy who's seen as, as a travel writer, and I mean, in all of those... In, just an embrace of the story um, and I think the, the desire to tell the stories of places that you found yourself, the people that you found in them more importantly and, and I think um, to write in a way that's compelling, I mean I've always, I grew up reading books and loving books, I, I came from a pretty unremarkable place in the Midlands and they opened just layers of my imagination that could not exist in a sort of post-industrial decline town 
without that kind of world. And, and especially, I think, for lots of classics, really, 18th century and 1700s stuff, where I, I feel like the, the eternal morals of what it is to be human were much more in play. I mean, the Enlightenment was, was more contemporary. And, and so and Stendhal, The Red and the Black, these heroic, wonderful stories just captivated me. And I always wanted to put that same energy into... Um, into the way I found myself traveling, whether that was on a bicycle or hitchhiking. And as I say, I was a politics graduate. My parents were always political. And to tell those stories in a way that could humanize and make relatable some of the political issues that get increasingly serious. I mean, we always have politics, and we, we're complacent where we don't realize that. But yeah, I really wanted to make that politics as ro at roadsides, it's the, the intersection of, of the transport network as you travel along it and, and what you see there and, and that's whether you're hitchhiking and being suspected in the deep south of the United States and seeing this poverty and people telling you Kentucky's the worst place in the world or whether you're riding a bicycle through northwest China and you see 30 kilometers of wind turbines spinning um, because of their renewable energy sort of seriousness it's you know travel is a beautiful thing it's a privilege and and it is everywhere. I mean, there's tra I cycled from Islington down to Westminster to, to, to Olympia this morning, and that is travel. And I think it's just being being alive to your environment and the world around you. Did you? Were you a fan? I mean, you're going to be because of the nature of your writing, the quality of your writing style, and the nature of what you write about, especially in interstate. You know, names like Steinbeck and Hunter S. Thompson and Kerouac spring to mind, and you reference them somewhere you know, at points in the book. Were these, were these important influences too? Did you read them or, or less so? Yeah, no, I've read all of those guys. Um, I, think, I think there's a tradition of American literature that is uh, amazing, and I don't really know it exists much in any English-British, British-English literature. You know, there's, it, it, it's a fearlessness, it's an entitlement to the page. Um, which I, I think growing up outside of any sort of, you know, establishments or a particularly successful place um, and, and books being my world, it gave me that same sort of entitlement to the page. That you have a piece of blank paper and you have a writing implement and you can create a world there. Um, and I think that is very closely connected to an idea of the American dream and the freedom and, and the rights of man and, and women. That sentence needs to be updated to the rights of women, but a, a real kind of dream that, that is there and a fantasy and yeah Walt Whitman, Steinbeck, Kerouac they're, they're really important people um, you know in terms of my kind of moral code the writing I, I put on a high pedestal of all literature you know and still uh, towards the Stendhal's and the Flaubert's and, and Dostoevsky's they're, they're my, my guys but, but well, or Celine I mean if you've not read Louis Ferdinand Celine Journey to the End of the Night you really should it's probably the greatest book of travel writing. Um, it sets the benchmark, for it, essentially. Um, so, yeah, it's just... Tr and and uh, Kerouac had visited Celine when he was ill in hospital, and it was, uh, you know, it was a rite of passage for Kerouac. I think there was an influence there. Right. Let's open it to the floor, as there's so many of you here. Um, we have a young man called Roddy, uh, resplendent in brown cords this morning. What's Finally. one of your favourite American... Uh, experiences that you had, favourite state? Favourite state? Uh, I mean, they vary a lot within states as well. I find Northern California really nice and Southern California really not nice at all, for example. Um, 
I've got, uh, I mean, I've spent a lot of time on the Hudson River in New York State now as well. I'm, uh, favorite state, uh, and Texas. When I cycled through Texas, it was my third meal uh, before I actually was able to pay for it myself. And not only had strangers been paying for my meals, they hadn't even told me. You know, I'd either had a conversation with them uh, and then gone to get my own bill on leaving and been told, oh, the gentleman there paid it. Um, or, or perhaps in one instance, not even been, been told, but someone had overheard the British accent and got my bill on the way out. And so um, Texans are lovely guys. Um, and, you know, the, the difference between U.S. people and the hospitality and the humility of them as well and, and the ugliness that manifests itself in its politics is something that's really, when you travel through the U.S., is really, I mean, yeah, it is unsettling. That disjunct is huge because I really like Americans and I think they're great people and I think in some instances the level of education is really low, but I, I've loved all states that I've, I've been in, I think, by and large. Another question. Well, I know that Jude, who's trapped in our uh, box, has got a curious query, a bit of a poser <laughs> for you. Cool. Go ahead, Jude. Hi, Julian. Hey, Jude. Um, in your books, you refer to yourself by a different name. What's that about? Have you given yourself a pseudonym? Um, yeah, in, in the last couple, I've uh, called myself Emre, which is actually my middle name. Uh, and Yunus Emre was a Turkish, Turkish Sufi poet of the 1500s. Um, my parents gave me that as a middle name, and it's just nice to create a little, um, a little distance between the, uh, what goes into my book and who I actually am. It helps me preserve a little of my own identity, I think. I, I kind of want to ask this, because you referenced it in your acceptance speech of the award last night, and forgive me if I get the terminology wrong, or if I piss you off, to be blunt. It's hard thing to do. You are half Turkish. You look Western European. Do you have any insights as to how different your journey might have been if you looked less Western European whilst hitchhiking across the States? Yeah, I mean, my, um, one of my best friends is um, a gay uh, Indian Kenyan. Lives in New, in New York. And, you know, I've, certainly cycling, probably because I was less gushing and effusive about the hospitality of the US after the hitchhike across. And he was like, yeah, stick to the coast, Julian. Um, but after cycling through and talking about all of these wonderful experiences, especially of the, as, of the South, which was yeah. a region I'd always been sort of really, um, you know, drawn to and want, wanted to see, saying how great people were. And he was like, yeah, it's hard for me to embrace as a brown, as a brown guy with brown skin. And it, even though I think a lot of those white people down in, in the South who are like, outright racist. I don't even blame those people because some of them are the best people in the world, but they grew up under Jim Crow and segregation. They were told by politicians who still to this day should know better than to lie and to deceive and to divide people, uh, that they were better for, than blacks. And that was the only thing that they were going to be given. Because, you know, I sat with a guy in a, in a trailer family in, in Louisiana and he was sitting on top of a like, 80 kilogram bag of pecan nuts that he'd picked to make himself an extra 50 bucks or something like that. And it was good money to him. And 50 years ago, he was told that he was going to be poor, but at least he was better than black people. And then it became politically uh, unavoidable that black people rightly, of course, had to be enfranchised. But then you have this situation of people who have previously, for generations, been told they're better than those people. And now they're going to have to share the same abject poverty. 
and I don't blame those. Everyone has an obligation and a duty to their own education, and those people need to do more. But the people that rule us, that that live in Trump fucking towers, um, that have education, that go to elite education institutions, that represent in government, uh, you know, they need to do so much more. And it's a slow process getting this better world that we all want. Like, but it is really bad that right now this sort of drain the swamp rhetoric of turfing out Washington is going to be used as a sort of as a mask on actually putting a load of mates and Exxon executives into positions of power. It, it's cynical in the extreme. <laughs> as that very lucid and evolved man Barack Obama said, "History for America zigzags; it doesn't go in a straight yeah, line." Yeah, exactly. And I don't know whether it's zigging or zagging at the yeah. moment, but one of the two. <laughs> Do we have any more questions? Does anybody, anybody like to ask Julian another question, either about hitchhiking or cycling? I'd really love you to ask a question, given that you have hitchhiked America. Please well, well, I was only because, well, obviously, I was standing by you in the bookshop, so you're the one who already sold the idea <laughs> to me. Um, I just wondered, um, I've only just had a couple of chances to read a couple of pages. Is this your first book or your first travel book? No, it's my third. Your third, okay. Yeah, I, um, the first one was Life Cycles, so that was cycling around the world. Um, I should say about that, the world record, basically, that uh, I cycled a few times to Istanbul already um, after leaving university, and a guy broke the world record for circumnavigation with loads of sponsorship by banks and investment funds and hadn't really done it that much faster than I'd gone to Istanbul anyway and had made it very corporate, and we were about the same age, and he was also a politics graduate, and I thought, well, you should do it a bit faster than that and not... Travelling on a bicycle is his most human and universally beautiful of experiences, and he sold out on it as far as I was concerned, so I, I set out to, to break his record. Otherwise, I'm not really so competitive. That I, and so that was the first book, Life Cycles, and then... Because it was more about getting, a, you know, to, to beat him as opposed to your experiences yeah. along the way. Yeah, no, it's still about the experiences along the way, but it is, in the background, this motivation of wanting to sort of reclaim life by bicycle and travelling on a bicycle and this thing that in, in my early 20s I'd associated as the purest of ways of living to see it sort of shackled to this big finance modern capitalism branding bonanza uh, you know it was just unsavoury so it was this contrast between the world I live in in London and, and then uh, the world that's out there on a bicycle so it, it's, a similar, it's a similar thing really um, but that was the first one and then Messenger's came out last year at the start of the year and that was, that was three years as a London bicycle messenger. So yeah, the first one was the world on a bicycle, globalization by bicycle, and the certain one, second is, you know, the modern city and the metropolis and, you know, delivering receivership notices to Lehman Brothers as they're going bust on, you know, billions of dollars and you're getting paid £2.50 for, for taking the envelopes or, you know, flowers going from hedge fund managers to, to known brothels down in Mayfair. So it's kind of this unseen London and, and the, you know, very stratified system and class system and labour hierarchy that you see there and but always with a kind of fidelity to wanting to paint pictures uh, of people and of landscapes and of cityscapes. So. There you go, there's two other good book recommendations there then if you want to know about uh, Yes, Under, underneath the service of London and life cycles. Final question from the lady in the pink there please. Thank you, I was just wondering um, where are you going next and how are you getting there? Um, my my next book, um, well, actually, I'm going to visit a friend in the Alps on a train next week, so that's just as a bit of a holiday and a, and a sort of writing trip. Um, the next, 
There is a book out later this year about an old sea dog who, um, 73 years old and left Britain as a £10 pom when his family went off to Australia after World War II and has since sailed a couple of times around the world. So I was with him in the spring and writing down his story. Um, the actual next journey that I'll really be going on is uh, in Istanbul and it's kind of more local and I'm half Turkish and Turkey is such a crucial nation in the world and especially right now culturally where it stands. Um, but I just want to tell the story of Istanbul and the country outside of it by walking up the Bosphorus which is a strait of water obviously between Europe and Asia and it's about 25 miles so maybe it's a marathon sort of length and I'll just walk, walk through the different neighbourhoods and explain how they relate to Turkish culture and again hopefully try and make some of these large ideas of foreign policy and uh, geopolitics try and make them relatable and how you see those uh, playing out in the neighbourhoods along the streets. I'm looking at the Bosphorus just above your head on the map <laughs> just there. Um, that's it for now. I'm back in 50 minutes with John Julius Norwich talking about ancient cities of the world. Hopefully see you there. But for now, many, many congratulations to Julian on a well-deserved win. If you haven't read any of his work yet, can I commend it to you, whether it's Interstate, the one that we've been talking about, whether it's Life Cycles about cycling around the world, or whether it's Messenger about being a London bicycle courier. Three books, quite a short career, and he's already won the most prestigious travel writing award known to man, and there's a good reason for that. He's one hell of a writer. Ladies and gentlemen, Julian Sarab. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks,